It's exciting to hear what this time will be like, to get our minds around it, to envision it, to make it real, because it is real. And we are striving to understand it, and, and God gives us a tremendous picture when we're at the feast. Let's turn over to uh, Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 12. You probably have read this already, but let's turn to Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 12 by introduction to look at it perhaps in a slightly different way. Isaiah chapter 12, I'm sorry, 58 and verse 12, after he speaks of a discussion about um, fasting and, and the, the, the right proper fasting and the goal of fasting, it leads right into verse 12. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And so one of the things that we think about as we are at the feast, we think about the future and how God is going to be rebuilding. We are going to be directing, rebuilding cities and a whole society and all of the uh, public works and all of the things that have to uh, go into a society to make it work. And uh, those foundations will be laid down for generations to come. But are there also ideas and concepts that will have to be rebuilt? That are just as much a foundation of society as brick and mortar? There are. And some of those have been torn down, are being torn down, and must be restored. One of them is marriage. Marriage. When we think about the underpinnings of society and the foundations that hold up a civilization. Of course, marriage is, is one of those and uh, is being torn down today. And even though we see uh, buildings are still standing, we see people going about their daily jobs and their normal routines and their business. And yet we understand that behind the scenes, marriage is hanging by a and is under attack and is being bombarded and hammered on. And we understand that there are voices even in our society that are crying out for a, 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 a rebuilding of marriage. And they understand, they see the writing on the wall and how it's going to destroy us, even those that don't have a religious perspective, they still understand the, the danger that we are facing. So it is the, at the root of many of our problems. <clears throat> so as we are thinking about the feast, as we are thinking about what needs to happen in the future and how we need to rebuild lives and how we need to help people to be able to function and, and do things that are sustainable, certainly one of them is not just in building cities, not just in helping them and understand how to create living environments, but also to show them how to live. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 
5, we understand that God is not just going to patch together this society with band-aids. He's not going to just cobble it together with a, a few uh, patches. He's actually going to raise it to the ground and start over. Start from scratch. Lay a new foundation. Isaiah chapter 35 and verse verse, uh, verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. And, and speaking of literal healing of the blind and the deaf and the lame and the dumb, what a tremendous promise that will be. For so many who suffer from ailments and have many difficulties that make it so hard for them in life. But let's also apply this to marriage. Because many people today, the vast majority of people today, are blind to the purpose of marriage. Even today, most people in our society, in their lifetime, will marry. Uh, overwhelming majority, I think it's in the 90s percent uh, will marry, but most of them don't know the purpose of marriage. They're often deaf to what their spouse needs. They don't understand how to provide their needs. Instead of giving their, their life strength and support, oftentimes their marriage is, it, it does not have the, the legs to stand on its own itself. And so it makes it very difficult for them. So this most important relationship among human beings will need to be taught, will need to be reestablished. And we're going to be doing it. You and I are going to be teaching them marriage. Verse 6, he says, then uh, verse 7, And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay there shall be grass with reeds and rushes waters bursting forth in the wilderness. You know, there are physical wastelands that will be renewed and restored and the, the desert will blossom like the, a rose. But we know there are also emotional wastelands, are there not, that need to be restored and that need to be nourished. And the waters need to flow to those wastelands and what a tremendous opportunity it will be when we can show people and teach people and marriage will then give them the nourishment and the nurturing that, that they crave and that they will need and will really become a, a structure and a foundation for so much that is good in the future. That will be our job, to teach them about marriage, the purpose of marriage, how to build a marriage, how to sustain a marriage, how to prepare for marriage, a lot to do. So in the sermon today, I'd like to talk and for us to think about just for several minutes today, uh, the things that marriage does for society and what it's going to be, what we're going to be teaching, what it does for us as well as we prepare to teach these things. Number one, number one, marriage defines the most basic relationship in society. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20 you know, when we are teaching these things, 
we are going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go to basics. As, uh, as Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Packers, is reputed to have said to his, uh, his professional football team at the beginning of camp, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, they all knew that was a football, but he had to start from the beginning. So we're going to start from the beginning, and let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. If you don't know where that is, that is on page 2 um, in my Bible. So uh, going back there, we find in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20, So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and Adam said, "Now is This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Or, depending on the inflection, Whoa, man! <laughs> We don't really catch that in, you know, in, in the uh, text here, but it, depending on how you pronounce it. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He defined the human, the most basic of human relationships. It was Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve, right? <clears throat> and yet our culture and our society uh, gets it all mixed up. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the first time in our history today, more than 50% of Americans approve of homosexual marriage. Now, not that, ev not that all of those people um, are homosexuals themselves. But over 50% of them approve of it. And that's really the, the danger. That's all that Satan has to accomplish is to get a majority of people in a society not necessarily doing it, but saying you have to accept it. And we have to al allow someone else to engage in that if they if they want to, and that, of course, is, is how our children in schools are being hammered today to tolerate these types of what God calls abominations. Romans chapter 1, he, uh, we're not going to read this whole uh, passage, but he talks about how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He says in verse 20 how the the invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. They're not they're without excuse. They are without excuse. We, we can see even in nature, it, it defines certain things, and certain behaviors go against nature, Paul was saying. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Verse 32, 
He says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So Paul was explaining that the behavior is wrong. It's an abomination. But also those who approve of it, that's a problem. That's not okay. And that's, of course, the tipping point that at some point our culture, our society will come to and God will, will say, it's over, it's done, I'm going to step in. And this is not the only sin, this is among many sins, but we understand that this is one of those things that, that uh, certainly God does not approve of. It's interesting how <clears throat> the Protestant world looks at the Apostle Paul. They, they love Paul because he supposedly did away with the law. You know, you can't depend on the books of Moses. You can't depend on the prophets of the Old Testament to get doctrine. You can't depend on the writings. You can't depend on so many other parts of the Bible. Uh, but James, certainly you can't depend on. But, but Paul, yeah, he's our guy. We love Paul because he, he gets, away, gets rid of that old law. But then they read this. They say, well, you know, he wasn't quite right on this either. So, so he, he's the champion, but when they don't agree with him, then they throw that out as well. Judgment is coming on our society for our sins. Now, again, do, do, we, do we hate the sinner? Of course not. We love the sinner. We hate the sin. Just like any other sin, homosexuality is a sin that has to be repented of. It's interesting, one of the men in New York was telling me that now a, a law, he, he was, he's a social worker in New York City, and there has been a law passed in New York State where it is now illegal to counsel someone out of homosexuality. It's illegal to try to help someone as a counselor, to come out of it. It's interesting. You know, our way of life, what we're talking about, is on a collision course with this society. Because, as we heard, uh, it's, it's upside down. And we're teaching a different way. There was an article in the USA Today a few years ago uh, entitled, What Does a Family Look Like Nowadays? And the writer said this, The American family isn't what it used to be. It's so much more. And isn't that the way they, they, they describe it? You know, it's not, it's not different. It's more. Why would you not want more if you can have more? Why would you want less when you can have more, right? That's how this is phrased. Uh, suggests findings of one of the most extensive surveys ever done on attitudes toward families. The definition of family has grown. You know, you know, the, the wording has grown to include more than just the stereotypical married mom, dad, and kids. Eighty percent say an unmarried couple living together with a child is a family. Sixty-three percent say a gay or lesbian couple raising a child is a family. Uh, nearly 40% say marriage is ob becoming obsolete. Uh, one of the researchers says people think today of family, quote, as a relationship rather than an institution. Isn't that a wonderful-sounding description? Who would, 
Who would want an institution? That sounds so cold and clinical when you could have a relationship, right? If you have a close relationship and act committed, then you count as a family. If you're making obligations to partners and kids, you get counted as a family, as opposed to older ways, you know, no one wants to be old-fashioned and boring and, you know, that sort of thing. Older ways of thinking when it was purely the legal definition. You know, who wants just a legal definition of family when you can have a relationship? You see how it's so subtle, but our young people are being hammered on this all the time. Marriage and family has been reduced to just a legal definition instead of seeing it as the the social construct that is an undergirding, that is a, a pillar, that is a structure that holds up the building just as much as these pillars and these piles that, that, that hold up a pier and a house here for those living along the coast that hold the structure up in case a, a hurricane comes through. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4 and verse 40. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40. We're going to teach a different way. We're going to show a different way. <clears throat> and it is going to make all the difference. Deuteronomy 4 and verse... forty, uh, Verse 39, he says, Therefore know this day, consider it in your heart, that the Lord Himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. There is someone who makes the rules. And that we just accept the rules or reject it. There's no middle ground. But if we accept them, good things happen. Verse 40, You shall therefore keep His statutes and His commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God has given you for all time. It's good for us. And God says that in other places, how His law is good for us. It's not to hurt us and to, to, to be harmful, but it's good for us. So we're going to lay out the law, and one of them is marriage equals a man plus a woman. And we're going to have to start from the beginning because as unbelievable as it sounds, uh, our society is confused on this issue. And it needs to be unconfused. Number two, number two, marriage defines what appropriate sexual activity is. Our world has absolutely lost its mind on the issue of sex. Wouldn't you agree? Every form of it is okay. Everything goes, whatever feels good. Except, of course, in marriage. Have you ever noticed on TV shows and in movies, you know, every form of, rela of sexual relationship is exciting and cool and mysterious and interesting. Except boring married people, you know. Everything is upside down. And yet the irony is, when it's really studied, sex in marriage is the path to the most satisfying relationship. 
There's an article that came out in, in uh, Family Circle some years ago. It said this, The trysts of those passionate singles, do they result in stupendous sex? On the contrary, married people report being more emotionally satisfied with their sex lives than either single people or unmarried couples living together. This finding is by psychologists from the University of Chicago and Cornell University. Uh, why is this so? The research notes that committed partners who expect their relationship to last forever, marrieds, report greater satisfaction than single or cohabiting partners who may expect their relationship to end at any point. It, this is not difficult to comprehend. It's not rocket science. But the, the, the studies are showing it. They're being written in the heartache and in the lives of individuals who have been testing every possible way to do it other than God's way. He says individuals have more incentive to invest in partner-pleasing skills if they think the relationship will last, note the study's authors, and it's a marriage contract that binds partners together in such an expectant, long-term, exclusive arrangement. So Satan's message today is that God is holding you back from having fun, and yet, as we read and just read in Genesis, uh, you know, one of the things I'll just quote it here because you know, you know what it says in Genesis 1:26, when God made man in His image, made him after His likeness, He says He created him in His own image. Then God blessed them and said to them, "Be fruitful and go have a lot of kids." Well, brethren, where do kids come from? What did he tell Adam and Eve? Is God sort of embarrassed about the physical relationship between a husband and wife? Of course not. He designed us. He designed our bodies. Uh, he knows how it best works for us emotionally and mentally. And of course, that is till death do us part. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 20. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 20. <clears throat> he knows the way and He's showing us the way and we have an opportunity to teach that in the future. But there will be boundaries. We will set parameters and God will say and we will say representing Him that here is the way to go and this other stuff, no, it just won't be a part of your experience. We will not do it. We will not tolerate it. It's not going to be allowed. But we will teach. We will help them to understand why it works this way. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 20, he says, Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. So, you know, you, 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 you should have lots of kids with your wife, but don't go next door, okay? That's bad. Leave her alone, God will say, and we will say. But it's okay in marriage, and it's wonderful, and it's good. Because if you go to your neighbor's wife, guess what her husband's going to do? He's going to come over and beat you up. So don't do it. Verse 22, 
You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Verse 23, nor, nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion, things that just you, are just unthinkable, and yet the imagination and the mind of man is knows no bounds. So we're going to have to go back to the basics and explain this is what men and women do in marriage. And this is how it works. And this is why it works. And this is what's going to happen when you do it the right way. <clears throat> Again, the New Testament backs that up. Paul said, flee fornication. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, he said, Marriage is honorable among all, and the, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Very simple, very plain, but yet, again, our society today is mixed up on it. <clears throat> today the message is that, well, you've got to go for a test drive before you really know if you're compatible with the person. And marriage is sort of like the, the dessert, you know, after the main course. And yet they don't realize and no one is telling them that that leads to heartache. That leads to difficulty. Cohabitation before marriage leads to difficulties in marriage. Leads to more problems with being committed in marriage as well. So we're going to be teaching that and explaining this as we uh, go through the millennium. Number three, number three, marriage provides personal fulfillment through companionship. One of the things that we will also teach people and explain is that the institution of marriage is good for them for companionship, that it, it provides for blessings that uh, that are wonderful. Again, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, we read this before. Uh, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. God designed marriage to provide companionship. Now, it doesn't mean that our single brethren can't be happy or can't be fulfilled you don't have to be married to be successful. You don't have to be married to be in the kingdom. You know, the Apostle Paul, at least for a, a good part of his life, was apparently not, not married. Uh, Jesus Christ was not married physically. Of course, he was married to Israel, and we are be, being prepared to marry him as the bride of Christ. But he didn't have a physical wife on earth. But if God blesses us with marriage, with the right person for us, it can be a relationship that can give us a tremendous amount of encouragement and support and satisfaction. Again, another Family Circle article some years ago uh, said the, the long-awaited groundbreaking Harvard Medical School study of aging, 50 years in preparation, has just been released with an extraordinary conclusion. Individual lifestyle choices play a greater role than genetics, money, race, or other factors in determining how happy people are in later life. What lifestyle choice matters most? 
In his book, Aging Well, George Valent, uh, MD, director of the study, says that the best predictor of good health and positive aging is a warm marriage. Now, a cold marriage doesn't have the same effects, does it? A difficult marriage can, can be very, very hard for those who struggle in that way. But a warm marriage uh, is a, a, a good predictor, the best predictor of good health and positive aging. Sure, he says, good cholesterol levels, not smoking, a healthy weight and regular exercise are important, and smiling five minutes at a time, it's all important. But marriage is not only important to healthy aging, it is often the cornerstone of adult resilience. God created marriage to, to be something that when it's really working right can give uh, satisfaction and, and give uh, companionship and give nourishment emotionally and, and mentally and personally for a lifetime. You know, Mr. Ames talks about the study uh, years ago about kissing your wife and then you won't uh, hit someone on the freeway. Uh, you know, there are so many good effects of, 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 a, of a warm marriage. And yet today, marriage is ridiculed, but tomorrow it will be held up in high esteem. We're going to be teaching this, whether in this life, whether we are, are married, whether we are single, whether we are divorced, whatever a situation we find ourselves in, guess what? We all are going to be teaching marriage. And so we all, we all have to make it a personal study to how it works, what makes it work best, and how did God design it? And why did he design it? And what's the purpose of it? It's the wave of the future. It's coming. And it's going to be wonderful for the vast, vast majority uh, are going to have so much better marriages than they've had or uh, people have had in this, in this uh, age at all. Uh, Psalm uh, 128 and verse 1. Psalm 128. In verse 1, it says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Verse 2 of Psalm 128, When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. When I was a kid, I, I read this, and I, do I really look like an olive plant? That's sort of hard to, hard to really wrap my mind, relate with an olive plant. I haven't really related to olive plants in that way before. But, you know, it, it's an illustration. All around your table, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. The, the picture he's talking about here is one of marriage being at the center of community life and of national life and international life and societal life held up as a place of honor 
The nuclear family, which today is derided, is the wave of the future. Mom and dad as a, in marriage, and then the blessing of children as God blesses <clears throat> according to his will. There's a practical reason why the millennium will be a time of happiness. And, and, and marriage, and the rebuilding of marriage, is one of those reasons. Number four. Number four, marriage provides for the care and nurturing of the next generation of children. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 22. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 22. We read about God's care for children. And there are so many scriptures actually that talk about how the, the future, the millennium will be good for children it will be a, a wonderful time to be a kid, to grow up in that society. But look at Isaiah 49 and verse uh, 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and their daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed to wait for me. You know, it, apparently, talking about uh, even those who have lost their parents in the difficult times in the day of the Lord and the tribulation that will be being carried on the shoulders... And, and, and brought back from captivity. Go, brethren, does God care about children? If he even mentions them here and how he's going to take care of those who perhaps have been orphaned in that time and has a plan for that. And if he's thinking about that and if he's concerned for them at that time, is he not going to be thinking about their overall development and growth? And what's the best way to grow children? Not by a village. <laughs> a village does not raise a child. Mom and dad, parents, marriage is at the center core of, of what God designed as, as being the way to bring uh, children into <clears throat> into adulthood. Notice in uh, Malachi chapter two and verse fourteen. Malachi chapter two and verse fourteen. <clears throat> we read in Genesis that Adam and Eve were to replenish the earth, have a lot of kids, and we're going to uh, we're going to see that in the future as well. There will be a a lot of children being born in the millennium. And it will be great. There will be kids everywhere. But they will be brought up in the admonition and training of the Lord. Malachi chapter 2 and verse, verse 14. Breaking into the thought here, he says, For what reason the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? What's the purpose of marriage? One of the purposes of marriage. 
He seeks godly offspring. He wants children to understand His ways. He wants them to be brought up to be nourished and to be nurtured and be taken care of. And ultimately, He wants children. He's reproducing Himself, so they're His children. And He wants them in His family. That's one of the reasons for marriage. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. There's a lot in there that talks about the purpose of marriage. To One of the purposes of marriage is to pro- provide for training of the young, not just bring them into the world, but to train them. And God wants to reproduce himself. And and it also shows his attitude toward divorce, that he hates the divorce. He hates it when the structure that he has created comes apart. Now, we understand that in this world, things happen. And some of you are either products of divorce or have experienced divorce in your own life. And it's difficult. And you've had to bear the the burdens of that and the pain and the suffering of that. You know, there there are biblical uh, grounds for divorce. and, And, you know, from time to time in the future... Uh, there, there may even be a divorce in the millennium. There, there are limited biblical grounds for divorce. But by and large, the wave of the future is that marriages are going to be built. We're going to counsel young people on how to prepare for marriage and how to select the right mate and how to let God bring you the right mate, how to become the right mate. And if you have experienced divorce in your life, guess what? You have an opportunity to tell them, look, I don't want you to have to go through the pain that this causes. I don't want you to have to suffer. And and those experiences will be valuable as we're teaching others and explaining to them, this is the the model, the ideal that God holds up. And perhaps those who have experienced themselves, there's even more urgency (laughs) to to help the whole world to to see marriage and to, to understand how it works and to make it work. This is what we're talking about here. God is has a, a, an incredible plan for the future. <clears throat> he talks about how in uh, Psalm 78, we won't uh, go there for lack of time, but he, he talks about how he's uh, commanded the fathers that they should make his laws known to their children, uh, that the generations that come might know him, and the, the, they, 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 they who would arise would declare his works, that they may set their hope in God. That's what God wants. And that's what we are training to do, every last one of us. 
whatever, whatever situation we come from in this life. We're going to be teaching that in the millennium. And, and child rearing will be so much easier in the future because society will back parents up and will help and support parents instead of tearing them down and, and eroding their confidence and eroding their ability to, to really teach their children. <clears throat> Researchers talk about the importance of having both parents there in the home. Uh, here's one author talking about the importance of fathers for girls. This is Meg Meeker in the, the book Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. If you don't have it, rec I'd recommend it. It's fantastic. If you're a dad and you have daughters, read this book. If you're a daughter, read this book. If you're not a dad or you're not a daughter, if you don't have daughters or don't have a dad, read it anyway. You know, <clears throat> we all are going to be teaching this. One of the things that she says, and, and she's listing the importance of, of having fathers raising their daughters. You know, we often think about, well, how important it is for a father, for his son to be there. But daughters need a strong father as well and, and, and present and there. And she, she says, this is, this is based on research. Girls with a father figure feel more protected, have higher self-esteem. Girls with fathers who are involved in their lives have higher quantitative and verbal skills and higher intellectual functioning. Girls with good fathers are less likely to flaunt themselves to seek male attention. Girls help fathers, uh, uh, sorry, fathers help daughters become more competent, more achievement-oriented, and more successful. Girls with involved fathers wait longer to initiate sex, have lower rates of teenage pregnancy. These, these are all from studies. These are all from things that, you know, it's funny. We as a society, we love to measure things, aren't we? And we are measuring the destruction of a civilization so that we are without excuse. You know, even whether or not we believe in religion and believe in God, we are quantifying what happens when the family is destroyed, when marriage is attacked. And, and also, we are quantifying what happens when it is upheld. He says, she says, a daughter from a middle-class family has a five-fold lower risk of out-of-wedlock out pregnancy if her father lives at home. Girls who live with their mothers and fathers, as opposed to mothers only, have significantly fewer growth and developmental delays, uh, fewer learning disorders, emotional dis disabilities, behavioral problems, etc. <clears throat> now, again, you know, if you're... Don't misunderstand my point. If you are raising, as a mother, raising your daughters alone, does this mean that you? it's impossible to raise them in, in a way that is pleasing to God? Of, of course not. God will help you. He will make up the difference. He will be a father to them. But in society, this is what's happening, and this is why God is going to bring back marriage and set it up as a thing of honor. She says... To fathers, your daughter takes cues from you, her father, on everything from drug use, drinking, delinquency, smoking, having sex, to self-esteem, moodiness, seeking attention from teenage boys. When you're with her, 
Whether you eat dinner and do homework together or even when you're present but don't say much, the quality and stability of her life and you'll find your own improves immeasurably. Even if you think the two of you operate on different planes, even if you worry that time spent with her shows no measurable results, even if you doubt you're having a meaningful impact on her, the clinical fact is that you're giving your daughter the greatest of gifts. And you're helping yourself too. Research shows that parenting may increase a man's emotional growth and increase his feelings of value and significance. What a blessing it will be when marriage is brought to the front and center as a foundation of society. And brethren, we are going to be able to help to teach it not just hit people over the head, but teach it and strengthen it and guide them and help them as they sometimes have difficulties. What a blessing it will be. Again, what if we're not married? What if we don't have children? How can we possibly teach uh, <clears throat> this in the future? Well, do you have parents? How many of you had parents uh, growing up? (laughs) Raise your hand. I'd like to get, Mr. Ames does studies. I'd like to get a study here. How many of you here had a parent, at least one parent in your, well, you really had to have two at some point. So two parents, okay. Okay, I think that's about uh, almost 100%. Everybody had a parent, right? So at some point we know And we had opinions about how we were raised. And we observed as a kid, believe it or not, you were doing a clinical study, a research study on child rearing as you were observing your parents. And you formed basic conclusions about their methods, didn't you? You know, as we go... Whether or not we have children, whether or not we are married, <clears throat> um, we, we need to make it a study. We need to make it a personal study. What, what works? Observe those around us. You know, one of the Living University uh, classes, uh, Marriage and the Family. And by the way, if you uh, have an opportunity to take it, it's highly recommended, very interesting, helpful information. But one of the assignments is to interview uh, others about marriage about child rearing because we're all going to have to teach it it's the structure that god has has put in place even if we have suffered from divorce and from some of those things that happen in this age and frankly we might have perspectives that will as i mentioned give us even more urgency to help to teach people that you don't have to repeat the cycles of the past. You know, especially at the beginning of the millennium. How important is that going to be that we can help people to understand, look, the past is in the past. We're teaching you a new way. You don't have to repeat. Doesn't uh, Scripture talk about how you know, the Proverbs that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the, the children's teeth are set on edge. But God says, no, that's, that's not going to be it. The, those, the, the works that we do, we will reap 
the rewards or we will suffer the consequences. And we're going to teach people that. You can break the cycles of the past. And how important is that? How encouraging will that be at that time? Isaiah chapter 60 and uh, verse 19 uh, and further, just referring to it here, he says, A little one shall become a thousand, a small one, a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. There's going to be a population explosion, a baby boom. And God is thrilled about that. There will be lots of kids being born in the future. We read other places like Isaiah 49, how the children you have after you have lost the others will say again, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. What's that talking about? It's talking about population growth, meaning people having lots of kids. The teaching and preparing children for the future will be an absolutely crucial skill that every single one of us is going to teach in the future. And that is a part of of marriage. Number five, number five, marriage will be a crucial component in bringing peace to mankind. You know, in Isaiah chapter 2, I think Mr. Um, Clevenger mentioned this in the the sermonette a moment ago, uh, talking about how they will not learn war anymore. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. You probably have turned there already, maybe multiple times already. It's a wonderful picture of the coming world of peace. But brethren, where is the root of warfare? Where does it come from? How could there not be warfare among nations when there is so much warfare in our homes? when there's so much antagonism between husband and wife, when there's so much clashing behind the door, why wouldn't there be warfare in this world? And as a foundation of not having war in the future, we're going to start at home. We talk about the battle of the sexes, You know, in our day, guess what? The battle of the sexes will be over. And we will announce that to people. It's over. It's done. No more will men and women battle each other for control of the relationship. It's over. That battle is finished. We're not going to have a thousand years of the battle of the sexes. Isaiah 2 talks about they will not learn war anymore. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Notice Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. He's uh, again talking about how the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field and uh, came to the woman and said, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
What was Satan doing? He was attempting to drive a wedge between Eve and God. And also, you know, where where was Adam? Did God directly instruct Eve, perhaps? Or perhaps, as God had instructed Adam, then Adam was was relaying the information on to Eve. So not only was the serpent trying to drive a wedge between Adam between Eve and God, but also between Eve and her husband. Are you going to let that guy tell you what to do? And brethren, how long has that cycle been played out? Don't let any man tell you what to do, ladies, right? Isn't that what the world is telling you? And the battle, battle of the sexes, it starts and it goes on and it goes on and on. One of the greatest gifts I think that our parents have, in my family, have given us, my brothers and sisters and I, is that they supported one another, my parents. They got irked at each other. You know, they had disagreements once in a while. But in their example, they worked them out. They didn't have long-standing grudges and long-standing conflicts. They teased each other, but with respect, not, not with an edge, not with a sword, you know, under the fifth rib. And I am so grateful to this day for that. And we're going to be teaching people how to, to love and respect one another and work in harmony. And that will be our job, to help them to, to know the battle of the sexes is over. It's interesting how much peace that a, a good, warm marriage can bring. Uh, there was a, uh, a test that was done <clears throat> where they, and now don't, uh, don't uh, misunderstand before I finish the, the, the story here. <clears throat> they hooked up some, a number of wives to electrodes, you know, uh, all over their, their body. And uh, they said, okay, they, they, they said, we're going to give you an electric shock. Now, ladies, don't please uh, run out, you know, before I finish the story. They're going to give you an, a, a small electric shock. And then... Before the shock came, they would then measure their stress levels. You know, isn't that a wonderful experiment? Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> so they did this, and then they brought their husbands in, and they said, okay, hold his hand. And now we're going to give you the same small electric shock, and they're going to measure the stress levels. Guess what happened to their stress level? It went way up. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> it, it went down. It went down when her husband, for those who, who described themselves as being in a, a good marriage, in a warm marriage, when they were holding the hand of their husband, it actually gave them the ability to handle stress better. Even when they knew something was coming. Is marriage going to help to promote peace in the future? You bet. Proverbs 31 
<clears throat> talks about how the uh, a husband and a wife working together means so much. Proverbs 31 and verse 10, who can find a virtuous wife? What a fantastic blessing it is to have a, a, a warm and supportive converted wife. It says, verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. We're going to teach ladies in the future, in their marriage, to have the law of kindness govern their, their words, govern their interaction with their husbands. And we're going to teach the husbands, verse 28, uh, and children. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. He praises her. He says, you're the best. My eye is not roving to this one over here or that one, but you're the best. You're the one I want, and I cherish you, and you're a part of me, and I need you. We're going to be teaching that, and it's going to help to produce peace. We know that today <clears throat> there's so much of a lack of peace and security, but, but we're going to teach that there can be a different way. Number six, number six, marriage will help to promote healthy patterns in relation to roles and work. There have been interesting reports that have come out about how much marriage and family wellness flows into being good employees as well, and how corporations that are smart uh, do their best to support family and, and, and marriage, um, and they even can track it that there is a return on the investment of every dollar that they put into uh, family wellness programs. And it makes sense, you know. If things are, 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 are rough at home, if we're struggling at home, it's difficult to focus on the job. It, it affects us. It affects our health. It affects our mental state. It makes sense. But we're going to, to teach a different way, and, and we're going to need for people to be productive. And one of the things that helps them to be productive will be proper roles in the family. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, back there in verse 17, we read here, After Adam and Eve had sinned and they were cast out, God told uh, Adam in verse 17, He said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, or dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Brethren, was the curse of Adam the fact that he would have to work the ground and provide for his family? 
Was that the curse that he said, okay, Adam, now you're going to have to provide food for your family? No, of course not. The curse was that it would be harder. It would be more difficult. The thorns and the thistles would would be a part of the experience. But he was given a role. Now, you know, today you walk down the street and you talk about how a man's role is to provide for his family, you'll get slapped. Right? But that's what God says. That's what the Bible says. Notice in, um, in verse 16, he says to the woman, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire uh, shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Is the curse of the woman to bear children? Was, what, did he tell Eve, okay, because you disobeyed me, now I'm going to have you to have children and to raise children. Was that the curse? Of course not. It was that it's going to be more difficult. It's going to be hard. But God designed, he said, that this is the role, this is the basic role <clears throat> that God designed the, the, the woman to be taking care of and raising it and, and being at the center of the home economy in that way. Now, again, you go out in the world and you talk about this and, and you'll get mugged. You'll get beat up. But we're going to be teaching a value. We're going to be teaching something in, in the future. And one assumption in the world today is telling women, don't sell yourself short. Don't just settle for doing diapers. You know, you're worth more than that. Don't waste your mind. You need to go out there and battle it with the guys. Otherwise, you know, you're not doing something meaningful. <clears throat> Reminds me of something that someone once put, put together, all the hats that wives and mothers wear. Um, here, 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 here's a list of them. Meal planner, counselor, comforter, nurse, policeman, and judge, you know, settling internal disputes in the home. Clothier, wor- wardrobe consultant, budget, financial planner, penny pincher, teacher, tutor, cheerleader, spiritual advisor, nursery worker, seamstress, cook, linguistics expert. That's the two-year-old variety, you know. Administrator, schedule planner, interior direct decorator, chauffeur, environmentalist, maintaining the proper home environment, family traditionalist, preserver of family history, and the, the list could go on and on. For a husband, a confidant, a companion, an advisor, a lover, encourager, partner, comforter, hostess, entertainer. For the community, a caring neighbor, a gracious entertainer, a volunteer, a counselor, a friend, a, a church member. We're going to teach men and women that they have roles that that God has outlined for them and He's designed for them. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8 says, verse 14, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Again, uh, the Protestant world loves Paul because he does away supposedly with the law. 
But then when he starts talking about homosexuality, whoa. And then when he starts talking about how I teach that the woman shall not have authority in, in the church or speak in the church and that they should be keepers at home, whoa. Then Paul really starts to tread on thin ice, doesn't he? Titus chapter 2 and verse 4 says that older women should admonish the younger women to, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The point is, we're going to be rethinking everything, and we're going to show the people in the future what the ideal is. Now, we understand that in some cases, this world is not the ideal. And there are situations that we, we have to deal with the best we can. But the point is, we're not just going to carry over the same assumptions and the same thought processes and the same ways of doing things of this society into the future. And the more we think about that, the more we prepare for it, get our minds around it. What an honor it will be that we can teach people to hold up the institution of marriage, which again also is going to help them to understand their particular role in society. <clears throat> Number seven, the last one. Zachar uh, marriage will reduce crime. Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 4. Let's turn over there quickly here. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Now think about it today. Today we want to get kids off the streets. We want to get them out of trouble. But in the future... The world of the future pictures a time when the streets will be places to, to play in and the grandfathers will be sitting and watching them and, and enjoying as the sun goes down, watching the kids play out in the, in the front yard and in the street playing together and it'll be safe. We read about how there will be a, a voice behind you saying, walk you this is the way walk you in it. It may not be just the God beings, but maybe it'll be dads that form, you know, little patrols that, that walk around the neighborhood as the sun is setting. This is actually being done in our country uh, in different communities, and they've, they have found it, it makes a huge difference. Uh, in <clears throat> in uh, one area in Indianapolis in 1991, a group of fathers calling themselves the Security Dads began attending local ball games, dances, and other events that attract crowds of teenagers. Their goal, as one member of the group explains, is to help children in the community by making sure there won't be a lot of trouble. As another security dad put it, what works in the father image is we don't need to say very much. Isn't that interesting? 
Just being there is what counts. With an officer, with a policeman, the kids think, I'm in trouble. But with us, they smile and they say, hey, what's up? And we love it. Today, if you walk down a deserted road and you see a group of men walking towards you, what do you do? <laughs> Look for a place to hide. But in the future, it may be the security dads that are just walking around, making sure everything's okay. What an incredible opportunity we're going to have to be a part of this revolution, a societal revolution, brethren, a foundational change. And we're going to be a part of Ephesians chapter three, 5, and we'll conclude here in Ephesians chapter 5. The scholars today can recognize the writing on the wall. They know researchers who have their eyes open, who are really honest about it, understand that the demise of the family, which, which really starts from the demise of marriage, is going to make our society collapse. But they don't know the solution. They don't know how to fix it. They're frustrated. They're scared. But one of the things that we are doing here is in envisioning the future and understanding how God is going to bring a very, very different world. Ephesians 5, verse 22, he talks about wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. We're going to teach that marriage is a relationship that parallels Christ's relationship with us. And it's not about cowering in fear. We don't cower in fear to our Savior, but we appreciate Him and we admire Him and we're so grateful He's there to protect us and provide for us and take care of us. And we're going to teach wives to have the same approach to their husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. We will show husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Take care of them. Help them. Don't seek out your neighbor's wife. That's going to destroy your family. That's going to destroy the trust and the bond that I've created you to have with this person for your, your whole life. Lay down your life for her just as Jesus laid down His life for us. Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We're going to teach unconditional love and respect. We're going to teach wives and husbands to unconditionally love their wives and wives to unconditionally respect their husbands. Now, we know that as it works, as the fruits are good, those things grow. And we love and we respect each other even more because we can see the track record. 
But Paul said this is a part of marriage, and it's really the goal that we're all striving for. So, brethren, we are here, of course, at the feast, and we're drinking in every day of the vision and the foretaste of the coming kingdom of God on earth. And one of those things and one of the pictures we see is about marriage. Our marriages today are not perfect, and God understands that, and yet He's called us anyway, and He's preparing us anyway. And neither will the people's marriages be perfect in the future, but we will help them. The more we learn and grow and change and support one another, in our own personal lives, our own marriages, our own families, and whether we're married or not, as we study and grow and learn to understand this absolutely precious institution, the more we will be ready to help grow the type of unity and faith and peace and stability in the future. Marriage rebuilt will be one of the greatest resources of the millennium let's be about our father's business and our own personal lives as we prepare to rebuild marriage